Hello guys, and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And before we get into our guest today, I just want to give you a reminder real quick of our ALS fundraiser coming up on May 15th. Uh, that will be at Bad Jimmy's Brewing there on Lurie Way in Ballard. Uh, I should say May 15th, 2018, as this will be online for a while. Um, uh, Trident Seafoods is sending their uh, fork and fin food truck over and 100% of all sales off that truck will go to the Pat Dwyer ALS fundraiser. And I encourage you to listen to, to uh, Sean Dwyer's podcast to get some background on that story and why we're doing it. Uh, but today's guest is Jeff Fries. He is the captain of the Viking Explorer, has been for about as many years as I've been alive. Uh, but uh, Jeff, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, 34 years. Maybe not quite. Uh, not quite as long as I've been alive. <laughs> I guess I was probably 11 or so at the time. But uh, in, in that time, there's been a lot of experiences. But I, I want to go back to uh, where you were born and, and how you were raised and what eventually brought you to this industry. Back to the very beginning. Um, I was born in northern Illinois, just a couple hours west of Chicago. And uh, from there, we moved when I was just getting ready to start high school to eastern Montana. And uh, did my high school there, started college. And uh, so I guess we just go from here about how it all happened, how I ended up on the water. So I was in college. My parents moved to the West Coast, to Waco. I think it was my second year. Basically, I was out of money. Didn't like borrowing money to go to school. Although when I think about how cheap it was to go to school now, you know, or how cheap it was to go then compared to now, I should have stayed. But anyway, uh, Dad said there's lots of construction work going on on the coast. He says, you may as well come out here. He says, I'm sure you can get a job. And so I did. I, I left spring quarter, went to the coast, and uh, lots of construction going on, but nobody would hire me. They hired all the local guys, everybody they knew. So You were how old were you again? I was 19. So I ended up going up to Olympia and getting my contractor's license and starting my own business. And uh, that, you know, it was actually going very well. And so one summer, well, this is the next summer, um, I was sitting around. I didn't have a lot of work lined up. I get a phone call, and it was from a contractor. This will take a while, but we'll get back to the water. <laughs> and uh, a contractor out of Portland calls me up, and he says, so he says, I got your name from the lumberyard. And uh, he says, I got a bunch of jobs to do, but I don't have a crew. He says, how much work have you got for the summer? And have you got any guys working for you? And of course, I didn't want to make it sound like I had nothing lined up for the summer. But I says, well, you know, we got some work, but, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you got. And he actually had several jobs lined up. And, and I had a friend of mine working for me and his younger brother had come out to work for the summer. And so... This guy's name was Joe. He goes, well, why don't you meet me at the restaurant tomorrow morning? He says, I've got one guy that I told him I'd give him a job, but he doesn't know anything. And so met him the next morning. We had some coffee, and he had this guy sitting there with him. The guy's name was Rodney. And Rodney had just quit off of a fishing boat, wanted to work on the beach, and wanted to learn construction work. So anyway, so we go into this. We built a couple of houses, a couple of additions and everything, you know, through that summer and fall and everything. And I became good friends with Rodney. Well, come fall, it was like, Rodney goes, well, he says, you know, this has been great, but he says, I'm starving. He says, I can't afford to, <laughs> he says, I can't afford, I can't make a living here. He says, I'm going to go back fishing. 
so you know we stayed friends and I learned more about the fishing industry he was on a on a trawler and and they were just converting to um, this was back the very beginning of midwater fishing and uh, and they were making very good money can you can you explain midwater fishing okay well um, trawl fishing originally your net always just rode on the bottom and drug along the bottom well midwater fishing came along and I'm not sure who did it first whether it was the Japanese or who so that's where you can control your net put it at any depth you've got electronics on the net to tell you the depth of the net and so you can move it throughout the water column instead of just dropping it down and dragging along the bottom mm -hmm. so you just you, you fish anywhere in the water column basically and uh, and this widow rock was a pelagic fish which is a fish that is anywhere in the water column versus a bottom fish or whatever and uh, so this was all new and upcoming and so the more I heard Rodney talk about it and everything I thought oh, that sounds kind of interesting you know so it might be something something kind of fun to do to check out well of course I mean the couple boats that were doing this I mean they're the top boats you're not gonna walk on there and get a job as a you know as a complete greenhorn do you, you, know, you recall don't... what those boats were at that time the names of the boats yeah uh, yeah, the one Rodney was on is called the Mystacy, and uh, the other one in, in our port, out of the port of Iwaka, was the Last Straw, and uh, um, owned by Maynard, who is a character that most people up and down the coast would know if they were around anywhere in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. We've heard the Last Straw mentioned on here before, actually. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, huh. So, it just so happened that one of the fellows that my dad worked with at the phone company in Owaco um, and become good friends with him. He was a CPA, but it was his goal to become a full-time commercial fisherman. He had started fishing, you know, fishing a dory when he was in high school, um, salmon fishing out of the Columbia River on weekends, put himself through college doing that. He had a 26-foot boat at that time that he was still fishing, and but when I met him, he had a uh, brand new 46-foot little Hoquiam salmon troller being built. So get talking to him and everything, and, and so he was going to take a leave of absence that year, you know, from a few months for the summer salmon season. And so he asked me to go along as a deckhand. So I thought, well, you know, that's be a way to figure out if I really think I want to get into this trawl fishing. This way I can at least figure out, you know, You're the pointy end from the round end on a boat and, you know, yeah. kind of, you know, kind of know what's going on on a boat, you know. And... Uh, so I went with went with Gordy. His name was Gordy, and so I started fishing with Gordy. And uh, how old were you then? Uh, oh no, no, this was just I don't know, only probably a year after I'd started my construction business, like the next 20, year. So I was 21. only twenty, mm -hmm. and uh, and so I kind of did that. We did salmon fishing, and then winter I kind of went back to doing some construction work, and then I went with Gordy again the next summer, and then we can set his boat up to go um, Dungeness crab fishing. So 1979, I think was the first time I got on a trawler. So maybe it was winter of 79. Rodney was on the Mystic and they needed a third man just for one night, whatever the guy, their normal third guy wasn't around. And I actually asked for a job on that boat that winter, but didn't get it because didn't have enough experience or anything. But I mean, they were going out, leave the dock at five, six in the evening, be back by five, six, seven, eight in the morning, depending on the tide, full, you know, crew shares, probably a couple of grand for a night's work. And uh, 
And so I went out one night and I got a half share. I made a thousand dollars. That was a lot of money back in, you know, whenever nineteen seventy eight or seventy nine. You know, hey, hey kid, the first hit's free, <laughs> right? And uh, and so it's kind of yeah, wow, that was that was pretty good. So from there, um, went back to work with Gordy, and then towards the end of the summer of seventy nine, well, actually, the beginning of the summer of seventy nine, I was fishing with Gordy, but um, my appendix ruptured, so I had to take a couple months off. And as I was still healing, probably before I was completely healed, at that time the Mississippi was hake fishing for the summer. The guy they had on as a third guy left, and so they needed a third guy. And of course, at this point, Rodney and another fellow that I'd become friends with, they were the two deckhands, and, and so they pushed hard to get me as the third guy. And I told him, I says, I don't know, guys, I'm not sure I can do this. He says, I'm still pretty tender because they split me wide open, you know. They said, don't worry about it, we'll cover for you. And so I went on there, and we fished for, I don't know, a month or two, finished up the summer season. And uh, so what happened next? Oh, I know. Then that was, Maynard was in the process of buying another boat. He had the last straw, and he was going back to the East Coast, looking at boats, and he bought a boat and brought it back to Ilwaco. And so I asked him for a job, because actually Rodney jumped over and, and had a job with Maynard on the new boat and he goes no nah. he says I don't know what I'm going to do he says I got a crew on the last straw they all want to be on the new boat and, and he says so he says I yeah he says, I'm, I'm not hiring anybody right now and I said that's fine so of course there's a lot of work to do on a new boat and it's only Rodney and Maynard at this point and so I knew you know I talked with Rodney all the time and so I knew everything that was happening on that boat if they were going to be doing something that required more than two sets of hands, I would show up, jump on board, help them out for a couple hours, and then leave when the work was done or, or the main work was done. And so I did this. This went on for a week or two. And finally, one day Maynard says, you know, we got a lot of work to do on this boat. And uh, he goes, I don't know that it's going to be a deckhand job. He says, I'll make you a deal. He says, I'll pay you by the hour unless it turns into a deckhand's job. And then, because if it, if it turned into a deckhand's job, obviously all the work I'm doing now is just free. It's it's part of the job. You do all the boat work, it, you don't get paid. So we must have worked another month. I mean, we built a cod in, we built an intermediate, um, had all kinds of work to do on the boat to rig it and get it ready. Um, and so things went on and on. Finally, it's time to go fishing. And Maynard goes, yeah, there's going to be, you know, some guys from the other crew off the last straw is coming over. It's going to go, okay. He didn't say whether I was supposed to go or not. And it's kind of like, okay, yeah, well, we're going fishing. You know, the, the boat's leaving at, at uh, whenever it was, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock that night, because you always fish the brownies at nighttime. At this point, I still didn't know if I had a job or not. So if we were leaving at 7, I showed up at 6.30, and I figured, well, I'm just going to sit on the boat until he tells me to leave. He shows up and never said anything, so away we went. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, that's a good sign. I might have a job. And and then that trip happened, and it was a nightmare because nothing was right. We'd worked for two months, and nothing was right. It had some old mechanical winches, and so instead of like the winches we have on boats now that you power them out under hydraulic power and bring them up and everything, well, you brought these up, obviously, with hydraulic power, but you set them with a brake. 
and these loosen winches. Loosen the brake and they went out. Yeah, loosen the brake. Had a big brake band on the drum and you had a wheel and you kind of loosened that wheel and and let it go out. And of course, you know, if you loosen a little bit, you'd think it would go out slow. But these things hadn't been used in months. And so the, you know, the surface that the brake, brake pad rode on was all rusty and everything else. And and when we set the gear for the first time, which there was no way you could feather it and control it. It was like one winch would just take off and the other would still be stopped. And so that guy would try to get going. And of course, the one guy that came over from the other boat, he was kind of scared of Maynard, so he was afraid to touch anything. So here's a guy with all kinds of experience, won't touch the winch. So here I am that's never done anything, supposed to be controlling this winch. I didn't have a clue. And we got the gear set, made a pass, caught some fish, hauled to the doors to turn the boat around, turn around so we go to set the doors again and didn't work this time, we crossed them. Which, your big trawl doors, you know, of course in that boat, you know, it was an 80 foot boat, 85 foot boat, so it's not like what we have on the Bering Sea boats these days, but I, we probably had three meter doors. So, you know, they were still weighed probably five, 600 pounds, six, seven feet tall, a couple, three feet wide or whatever, six feet tall probably, and maybe not even that tall, but anyway. So now you've got them wrapped around each other, cables and everything, and, and behind the boat. The and and yeah, and and so you got to try to drag it up and get everything untangled. And no cranes or anything on those boats. You just had a, a boom that had a hook line hanging off of it and another winch on the mast. So anyway, we spent a couple, three, four hours getting the doors on board and untangled. And, uh, and we're doing this. And Maynard's down on deck directing, orchestrating everything. And Rodney's back there trying to help him. And again, the experienced guy wouldn't touch a valve, a hydraulic or anything. So now I'm up running the hydraulic valves while we're trying to untangle these, these winches and everything. <laughs> so at one point, you know, Maynard's a pretty tall guy and, and got long arms. And so that he's got a hold of this hook at, as high as he could reach. And he's telling me to go down. So I'm opening up the valve and, you know, I don't want to open it up really fast to create a snarl. And, and, and I'm, so I'm opening it really slowly. And nothing's happening and nothing's happening. And he's screaming down, down. And so I'm moving it a little faster. Still nothing's happening. Well, next thing he jumps up, he's got a hold of the hook with both hands. He's swinging from the deck, screaming down. And I open it up a little bit more and it just, boom, it just drops him on the deck. <laughs> and I get kind of a dirty look. But go about business, nothing more was said. We get the doors untangled, and then Maynard goes back up to the wheelhouse. We bring the rest of the net on board, we get to the cod end, we've got probably 40, 50,000 pounds of fish in the bag. Well, a brand new cod end that we just built, the retaining straps that, that limit the circumference of the bag were way too big so the bag wouldn't fit up the stern chute of the boat. So now we're having to jury rig things so we can split over the side, which um, is what all the old bottom trawlers, that's what trawlers originally did, where you would kind of bring the end of the bag along the side of the boat and you had a strap a little ways up that would choke off three, four, five thousand pounds, whatever you could handle. And then the rest of the fish would kind of, you'd let netting out and the rest of the fish would kind of run forward into the intermediate and so then as you picked up you would pick up this bag of a couple three four thousand pounds and drag it over the side of the boat so that's what we had to do makes for a long long night of empty yeah it was a long night and 
And I mean, it took us a while just to get straps rigged and everything to do this. And we finally get it going. You know, we're splitting over the side. Well, at this point, Rodney's up there now running the valves because he's experienced and he knows what's going on. I really kind of wonder what that other guy did because he never really seemed to do anything. Because <laughs> so while you're in the process of doing this, you know, you're having to throw straps around the, the, the net in different places and push the fish forward and then drag the bag over the side and open it and close it, you know, sew it back up, put it Rinse back and, repeat. And, and keep doing this over and over. And, you know, and we finally kind of get a system going. And so at one point I throw the strap around the bag and I get the hook, I put the hook in the strap and I give him the up signal. And it goes up and stops. And so I'm looking over at Rodney and I'm going up and he's going, nothing's happening. He says, valve's open. And I don't know, at this point, I mean, we're into the wee hours of the morning and Maynard is sitting up in the wheelhouse and all you can see over the windowsill is his eyes. He hasn't said a word for hours. And then he had this hat. So it was the brim of his hat and his eyes is all you could see through there. Hasn't said a word, hasn't made a sound. And uh, as we're doing all this stuff to, to split over the side. And I can't figure out why nothing goes up. Well, I finally take a look. Well, there was this little stanchion pipe that kind of came in there. Well, when I put the strap around the net, I put it around the pipe. So basically we're trying to lift the boat with the bag. And I figured that out and I said down and... And next thing we know, we just hear Maynard bust out laughing in the wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's strike two. Finally, we get finished. Were you feeling like that? Were you feeling like you were... Oh, yeah. I just felt like I totally screwed up. And so, I mean, it's daylight. We finally get finished. It's daylight. You know, I mean, it was a long night. Get the last fish on board. We're heading for port. And... Uh, figure out where that third guy was yet? Yeah, right. Yeah, it just, you know, I mean, he had to be doing something. I'm sure he was shoveling fish and everything, but it's kind of like he was afraid to touch anything because Maynard had quite a reputation, you know. I mean, he'd been working on the last straw for him for a while, but anyway, so he, it was like he was scared to death to do anything. And so, of course, we get back, and, and the first thing he says, yeah, he says, I'm keeping my job on the last straw. I don't want to be on here. <laughs> and he, we hit the dock, and he's gone. And, uh, you know, we pull under the offloader, and the boat gets offloaded, and, Maynard never says a word to me, and he tells Rodney, I, I don't remember what it was, you know, well, you know, go ahead, go get a couple hours sleep, and then those retainers all have to have, be taken apart, three feet cut out of them, re-spliced. Yeah, you bet. And he never looks at me, never says a word, and he leaves. So it's kind of like, oh, okay. Do I have a job? Do I have a job, or don't I? And so I just said, Rodney, well, what time are you coming back to splice things up? And he goes, well, you know, he says, I'll go home. I says, I'll be back, whatever it was, two in the afternoon. So two in the afternoon, I showed up, re-spliced everything with Rodney, and was just waiting. I thought, well, we'll see. Do I have a job or not? <laughs> I, I worked for Maynard for a couple, three, four years after that. I, he never did tell me if I was hired or not, but I just never left. <laughs> kept getting a paycheck. <laughs> he kept paying me. So so anyway, but so that was my that was the beginning of my trawl experience and uh, how I got into the trawl industry. And it was actually not very long after that, Rodney left. The next thing I know, I was the senior guy on the boat. And uh, still never felt like I knew anything. And, but willing, uh, to, willing to turn the valves. And, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, and then that was the boat, first boat that I came to Alaska on. That would have been 1982. And that was when Trident built the first shore plant. And that built plant was in 1982. It was built just to do cod. You know, Pollock wasn't the thing yet. Yeah, that was in uh, Accutan. In Accutan, yep. 
They were and salting it, right? Some of it, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it. They were salting it, and then they also had these huge A-frame where they hung the small fish. They'd split it and hang the flays and dry it out and called it stockfish or whatever. So we took the Maynard's boat, the 80, 85 foot or whatever his name was, Jan Bet. So he asked us all, he goes, you know, um, he goes, we got this opportunity because at this point, the hake was kind of getting fished out. The the brownies were getting fished out. Everybody and his brother was brownie fishing now. All down in Oregon? All down off Oregon, Washington coast, Northern California. And uh, price, shortly after I got involved, you know, we'd started out, we were getting 20 cents a pound for Widow Rock, but shortly after I got hired, or well, say I never really got hired on the Jan bit, but I never left, The everybody was jumping into the Widow Rock because it was, you know, it was a big money fisheries, like everything else, it's the gold rush. And all of a sudden the price went in half from 20 cents a pound to 10 cents a pound. You know, I'd had my foot in the door for, you know, about three months. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, still making okay money at, at 10 cents a pound, but you were making half what you could have made or what you would have made the year before. And so anyway, so Maynard goes, well, I've got this opportunity. You know, are you guys interested in going? And we all said yes. Had and you been to Alaska before that? Never been to Alaska. Wanted to. It was. It was on my. It was. It was part of my plan, as a young man. You know, I didn't know how I. Because I knew nothing about commercial fishing when I came to the coast. I didn't know it existed really. But at some point, I, it was my intentions whether I was going to go try to get on a surveying crew or whatever. But it was my plan to go to Alaska to see it. And uh, I still want to do that. <laughs> I still want to see Alaska. Because <laughs> all I've ever really done is gone to the Bering Sea. You know, I mean, I've seen some other parts of Alaska from the water, but I really have not tread much of the Alaska soil. Um, so someday. But, uh, you know, we all we all said we were interested in going. Maynard had actually offered me the chance to run the boat like a few months earlier than that. But you weren't I even mean, hired yet. How are you going to run I had never been hired, but we're, we're into, I don't, it must have been like the summer or fall of 81. He offered me the job to... To run the Jan Bet part time because he didn't want to be there all the time and it's kind of like no I don't know what I'm doing but I'd gotten this one friend of mine hired on there that had way more experience I mean he'd been fishing his whole life and I you know but I was a senior guy and so Maynard offered it to me I said no I said but you know Frank's ready he wants to run a boat and I said you know you should give him the job and so he did and uh, and then we had this opportunity and and we all agreed that we wanted to go to we'd go you know Willing to try to Alaska, so, you know, May 1982, we headed for Alaska. It was May. Anyway, we got there. Well, of course, you know. Wait a minute. You take the inside passage then on that size boat? Yes, we did. Yeah, we came up the inside. How was that? Um, You know, I don't remember a lot about it. I wasn't navigating, but obviously I was taking watches. Um, You know, it was was very interesting, Um, but I just don't really remember that part of the trip. I do remember getting to Kodiak because Maynard made arrangements from some local guy that Dungeness fished around Kodiak and and we had a couple hundred of his crab pots, dungeon pots on board. That, oh yeah, you can just drop them off in Kodiak, right? So we pull into Kodiak to drop off these crab pots. A halibut opener had just finished. Well, in those days, you're talking, it was the Olympic system where they had these two, three day halibut openers and everybody and his brother fished halibut. I mean. It was a good money-making deal, and anything that floated had some long-line gear on it. And we pull into Kodiak, and every dock there had boats five, six deep. 
we found some place to tie up. Actually, it was a brand new, brand new plant. It was the only one that didn't have a boat tied up to it. It was the Mooney plant. I don't know what they call it now, but uh, so we got tied up there, and we went to the place, whatever fish company it was that we were supposed to offload the pots. They go, oh yeah, well when we get these halibut cleared up, you know, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be happy to have you offload them. Well, when's that going to be? Well, you know, probably six, seven, eight days to get through all of this halibut. It's kind of, well, we can't wait that long. So, you know, it took a day or two. We finally figured out that we could go. We went around to the to the Shelikoff side of the island, and I don't even remember if it was Larson Bay or where we went. But anyway, back up some little narrow bay and everything. Some little salmon cannery was there. It was a pretty cool spot to go to. And we offloaded the pots there, and then we headed out to the Bering Sea. And we pull into... Tr- into Accutan, <clears throat> excuse me, Accutan, where Trident is, and of course, the plant's not ready to take fish. And so we spend two or three weeks, we spent about, I think, seven or eight days, if not ten, just anchored right off the west face there, using our Gilson lines to hold up the outfall line that the underwater welders were putting together. And, mm-hmm. and so we spent a couple, three weeks until and, and the plant was finally ready, and, and then we got to go fishing. So. There was a couple of other small boats around there that were up there fishing cod for strictly for bait, you know, for the king crabbers. And so one or two of those had brought in a couple thousand pounds, you know, here and there to kind of finally start trying to get the plant going. And uh, and then they finally sent us out and, and we started fishing. So we didn't really deliver the first fish, but we were really the first boat to actually bring fish and bring in, start bringing in some bulk. But of course, know anything about cod fishing may is a terrible month the cod fish in the bering sea the spawn is over the fish are gone and so it was a scratch and like the previous year maynard had offered me to run the boat and i'd turned him down but when we were getting in just that few months you know frank was running the boat and everything and and i'd kind of reached the point where i had the confidence where i thought you know what i think maybe i can do this and so i told maynard i says you know if there's ever another chance i says i think i'm ready you know ready to be able to run a boat well then Frank's running the boat, we're in Accutan, and Maynard tells us, well, I'm going to bring the ocean leader up. And uh, so it was a boat, uh, you know, a large boat. What do you say large? Well, it's a 115-foot boat, you know, quite a bit bigger than 85 feet. And, you know, in those days, we're talking 1982, so kind of the king crab thing had collapsed, and and a lot of boats were being repossessed. Well, production credit kind of had this boat they had the financing on it i don't know that they'd repossessed it yet but they'd hired maynard to basically run it and hopefully turn it around it had trawl gear on it so he called me and and he goes well i'm bringing this boat up and he says you can run it and and i said okay you know he says i'll be with you and everything we'll figure it out and so that was going to happen later in the summer and and we fished we weren't catching a lot but we were grinding away and for a couple months the plant was still breaking in anyway right yeah they, i mean you know it's brand new plant so lot, they lot couldn't of, handle a lot of volume anyway a lot of gears to turn a lot of yep and uh and so frank you know he spent a couple months there and then he wanted to take the month off so it was the month of july i think he took off and so i stepped into the wheelhouse for the first time july yeah july of 1982 so i was 25 years old and just went out and Actually, I thought I did fairly well. I produced more than than the boat had been producing. I mean, 
maybe more fish around too, but you know, but we were, you know, we were very consistent, did well for the whole month of July. And then uh, the month of August, Maynard was supposed to show up with the ocean leader. And then he said, well, I could go over there. Well, the ocean leader shows up and Maynard's got this other guy on it. And it's kind of like, oh, I thought I was going to run that boat. Mm -hmm. Well, wait a minute. No, I kind of actually got this, I got this mixed up a little bit. The ocean leader showed up at the beginning of July before I started running the Jan Bet. That's right. I forgot this part. So Maynard's going to come over and go on the Jan Bet with me for make my first trip or two to kind of break me in, right? And he brought this other guy up that was now going to run the ocean leader. And what he told me, he goes, well, he says, I brought him along. He says, I decided I, I wanted you to be the alternate skipper, go back and forth between both boats. And so it's kind of like, okay, I can do that. That's fine. I, I mean, he never hired me anyway. So it's kind of like, take what I get, right? And uh, you never hired you, you can't fire you. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so Frank flew home and Maynard gets on the jam bit and we go out and he's going to make this trip with me to break me in. Well, of course, this other guy, he's got the ocean leader and he's out there fishing. We get out there, daylight, first day, set the gear. We didn't have the gear in the water for probably 15 minutes. And Skipper on the ocean leader calls and and says, yeah, he says, I just hung up and lost everything. So basically broke off his gear, lost his net, doors, the whole works. Oh, shit. And they had a, a little Zodiac on there. So may well send us, you know, so Maynard says, send the Zodiac over. So they came over and get Maynard and away he went. Oh, so, so I had a 15-minute tutorial. I, that, that was my training. <laughs> I thought maybe he'd come back, <laughs> but he never did. And so, and anyway, like I said, I, I felt I did pretty well that month anyway. We produced pretty well. And, uh, and then went into August, and then I think I went home for a couple of weeks. And then basically the other guy that was hired to, to run the Ocean Leader, he didn't last. And so when I came back up um, beginning of September, then I went straight to the Ocean Leader, and then I ran that boat all that fall and winter of 83. So, oh yeah, 83, that's when I got married. And so we fished till April or whatever when the spawn happens and cod fishing's over. And, and I told Maynard, I go, you know, planning on getting married. And, and actually he was too. I said, so you know, I really need to be home by the 1st of May. Oh yeah, that's not a problem. Well, of course, by the time fishing had kind of dropped off and everything, we were still scraping away there towards the end of April. But Something had happened with the insurance on the boat, and all of a sudden we were not insured. And so he just told me, stop fishing. We weren't catching much anymore anyway. And he says, you're probably just going to have to wait a couple days, you know. And, but we'll get this insurance thing straightened out, and then, you know, you get headed home. Well, a couple of days was a week, and pretty soon a week was a couple of weeks. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, Maynard, I really need to get home. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get married. And he goes, well, just hang on a couple more days. We'll get it straightened out. Well, anyway, he finally gets it straightened out, and I sail. I don't know. I mean, it's a seven-day, eight-day trip down. And so it must have had 12, 14 days, something like that. And, of course, we're headed down, and we start hearing this noise a couple days out of Accutan. It gets worse and worse, and I'm about... We're headed for the Oregon coast uh, to go into Coos Bay. So we're about 50, 60 miles offshore, and boom, you know, the reduction gear explodes. We're dead in the water, and... Uh, so the Coast Guard comes and gets us, and that was a whole other story. They tow us in there. I told them to bring a big boat. They sent out a 44. 
bounced us off a couple buoys going up the river. You know, guy driving to 44, he burned up both engines. But anyway, they get us there, and uh, I made it home five or six days before I was supposed to get married, so all was good. Okay, so yeah, I made it home. That's what I promised my wife, and uh, that's actually what I told her. I said, give me a time and a place, I'll be there. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want any wedding planning. Got married, went on our honeymoon, got back from the honeymoon, my brand new father-in-law were at their place and he goes say what was the what was the name of that fish company you were working for and I says trident seafoods he goes yeah he says I was in a place called like Accutan right and I go yeah yeah he goes I think that place burnt down and I'm going really he goes I'm pretty sure he says it was on the news it was kind of a big deal and so yeah I get home from my honeymoon and I'm unemployed so I wasn't sure how impressed my father-in-law was with all of that. But anyway, and so, of course, I make a couple phone calls, and sure enough, so that, that cod plant lasted one year and burnt to the ground. So at that point, it's kind of like, okay, so I pick back up. I mean, I still had people calling me pretty regularly to do construction work, and so I just jumped right back into that. Uh, so we're spring of 83. And so I started doing that, and I wasn't sure. I think a friend of mine that winter asked me to go Dungeness fishing with him on the coast, and I did that. And I was kicking around. I didn't know if I was going to go back to Alaska or not. I mean, I liked it, but now I'm newly married and just wasn't sure. Wasn't proactive, hadn't done anything, hadn't gone and asked anybody for a job. Was still kind of kicking around. Well, it's March of 1984. I get a phone call. It was from Corey Ness. He said that he was given my name from Maynard, and Maynard was running his boat called the Viking Explorer. They were Pollock fishing, and uh, they just started out some Pollock joint ventures. And, and Pollock was brand new. Brand new. This is, yeah, I mean, of course, the foreigners have been fishing it forever, but, but it was brand new to the American fleet. And Maynard wanted, he'd been, you know, he was fishing a boat, and he wanted a relief captain. And so he, he told me I should call you. This was what Corey said. And I, I said, okay. I said, yeah, you know, I'd like to come up and talk to you about it. And, and so I won't commit, but, you know, maybe we can sit down and talk. And we made an appointment for me to come to Seattle and sit down with Corey and, and discuss it. And so that evening, of course, my wife comes home from work, and I tell her about it. And she goes, yeah, okay, well, you know, if that's what you want to do. And it was the next day I get another phone call, and there was a fellow that was managing, um, well, he was the assistant manager, actually, for the Accutan plant when it was a cod plant. He was a Norwegian guy, Otley. And he called me the very next day. I mean, I haven't thought about fishing for almost a year since I got married. The very next day he calls me and he goes, Jeff, we're putting together a factory trawler. And he says, obviously I got to crew it up. He says, I would like you to, to be one of the crew. He says, you know, you're going to have to put in some time get a license and everything but he says you know I, I really want you to to you know consider running it for me eventually and because uh, like I say he was there he saw what I could deliver and everything and and uh, it was kind of like okay I said well Otley I says yeah let's I says can I come up and can we talk about it and of course I'm coming up to see Corey already so you know I make an appointment for him the next day or right. whatever you know make one trip to Seattle and so I did. I came up 
I sat down, interviewed with Corey. The next day I interviewed with Otley and toured his new the factory trawler. It wasn't a brand new one. It was a ship that had been converted. What was she called? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the name of that was. It was you know, one of the very first ones. Well, of course, there was, there was the... So, obviously, we didn't choose that one because you can't even remember the name of her. Yeah, I, I want to say it was Royal Sea, <coughs> but I'm not 100% sure. Um, so, so I interviewed. Sue went with me. You know, we spent a couple days in Seattle, and then we went back home. And this is testament to, you know, how smart of a guy I am. You know, we talked about it, and this is what I told Sue. I said, look, I said, I've... I've been in trawling here for a few years you know not very many but but i've seen us wipe out the hake on the west coast i've seen us wipe out the widow rock i says this pollock thing you know i says it's not gonna last you know i says it's gonna be really good for like three years four years it'll be okay for a couple more years after that he says trawling's too efficient we'll wipe them out so i says you know i, I probably stand to do pretty well you know for a few years if i take one of these jobs i said you know salt a little money away and then and then it'll be all over, and I come home. And she thought, yeah, that sounded like a good idea. And that, what year was that? Yeah, that was 1984. Okay. <laughs> I say, I didn't claim I was a genius. <laughs> I thought about it, and I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I want to put up with, you know, 35, 45, 50 people, however many people are going to be on that. And so I, I called Corey, and I said, yeah, I'd like to take that job. So April of 1984, I guess it was, I fly to Dutch Harbor, I meet Maynard at the dock, the fuel dock. They're fueling up the boat. The boat's showing venture, and, and I'm thinking, well, surely he's, you know, he's going to go out, and we'll go out for a week or something, and he'll show me the ropes. Like you he know. did last I time? Yeah, like he did last time. I mean, I haven't been on a boat for a year. I was kind of like, nope, see you later. Now, that was that the Viking Explorer? That was the Viking Explorer. And you were put on there as the captain. And I'm the captain. I'm Never seen the boat point, before? At that point, actually, I had seen the boat before. Oh. Actually, I'd actually... I'd actually been on the boat and been to sea on it. Because when I was running the Ocean Leader that winter, the Viking Explorer was still a crab boat. They blew up the engine. I, th- I don't know if they're brown crab, but they blew up the main engine in it. It got towed into Accutan. NC mechanics were rebuilding the boat at the dock in Accutan. And uh, I actually tied the Ocean Leader outside of a couple times. And I actually remember going, crossing the boat. And then actually the first time, it was kind of like jumped down. And I walked out on the deck of that thing. Now, the Ocean Leader was 115 foot. The the Viking Explorer is 124, but the Viking Explorer is quite a bit more boat. And I just remember stepping on that back deck and kind of looking around, and it's kind of like, good Lord, you could have a volleyball court or a basketball well, court. This thing pretty, is huge. She was still pretty young then, right? Oh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was built in 1979, so it was a five-year-old boat. Yeah. Well, six, five, going, five, going on six years old. That's still a pristine Cadillac. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, it was nice. So NC finished building it, and they needed to sea trial it. And so the chief engineer at the Accutan plant at the time asked me if I would go with him because NC wanted some guys that could drive the boat. So, yeah, we actually jumped on board the Viking Explorer that either late in 80... No, it must have been, this, must have been early 83 during the cod season, I'm, I'm guessing. Either that or it was the fall of 82, I don't know. But so anyway, so we took it out. Took it out of the harbor, out into Akatan Bay, ran it around for a couple, three hours to warm everything up so they could do all their tests because it was a freshly rebuilt engine. So I had been on the Viking Explorer before, 1984. But now you're showing up as the captain. But now I show up, I'm the captain, and I'm going out joint venture fishing, and which I'd done on a on a little boat off the West Coast. And so, yeah, it was kind of like, it was, it was nerve-wracking. Because, like I said, I'm, at that point, I guess I'm 27 years old. 
I think everybody on the crew was just about older than I was. But we went out, started Pollock fishing, and deliver them back to Accutan. No, 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 no. This is joint venture. So, so the Accutan plant, I guess, was in the process of being rebuilt. I, I'm not foggy, but I or I'm kind of foggy about how that all went. But no, at this point, it's joint venture. So you're because so we're delivering to ships at sea. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a whole interesting thing in itself. I mean, I've delivered fish to the Russians, the Bulgarians, the Polish, the Koreans, the Chinese, the Japanese. So that was all part of the... Uh, you caught it? it and we, yeah, we caught it and then never brought a fish on board. You'd fill the cot end, you'd bring it up behind the boat, you'd choke that off with straps and everything, and then you disconnected it from your net, and you came up behind a ship, the ship would send back a, a line, you'd grapple that, pull it together, shackle their line to your cod end, and then send it away, and they'd take the fish and then haul they, it aboard. They'd hand you a new net? And they'd your... send me a new cod end, and, and we'd grab that and sew that one on and go make another tow. Never brought a fish on board. Yep. It was actually, it was very efficient. You know, it was a lot of fun, but, you know, you we just stayed at sea. I mean, Viking Explorer packs 73,000 gallons of fuel and you would burn 1,000, 1,200 gallons a day. So we made, I think my longest trip, I think I made 66 days one time. You know, 66 days nonstop at sea. That was long enough. So we would do that, and then you'd, of course, come back to Dutch, fuel the boat, get groceries, maybe make a crew change, and away you went again. And so that's what we did. That morphed into, um, gradually they got the shore plant kind of rebuilt, and so we would joint venture, that was our bread and butter, but then like the joint venture kind of ended, then we started, we'd bring a little bit of fish into Accutan. Uh, started that they'd let me bring in two tanks because they only had a couple of machines that would run Pollock. And so like I said, we would do that when we were joint, we're not joint venturing. Yeah, it just seems like it kind of went from there and a little more and a little more. And then the American Fisheries Act, which was passed in 1977 or 79 or something, I think that was the name of it but that's where we claimed 200 mile limit like everybody else did all the other countries and so part of that said we would allow the foreign fleet to still come in and fish until we had the ability to process it and take care of it ourselves so that's joint ventures came into effect and then we started building our own plants and once we had our own plants we basically booted the foreigners out, yep. and uh and then it went shore base they made it made it made it a sustainable fishery yep you know. yep and and yeah, that's stuff that but we that were going to wipe four, out in four, five, six years. It's still out there. A <laughs> it's lot still of out there, and we're in uh, 2018, and and the scientists are telling us right now the stock, stocks are better than they've ever been. So not to speed you up too much, because this is great, but uh, you, so you've been on that boat this entire time, still currently today the captain of that vessel. Yes. You've shared some of the captain responsibility now with uh, your former engineer, uh, Elmer. Yes. You, you yep. share that with him. But during that time, so now we've got many years at sea, many years. Can we think of a, a time when you were when you were really afraid? I have to say, I guess I've never been afraid, probably when I should have been, because when you should be afraid, I don't have time to be afraid. You know, when when there's a couple, you know, when there's some bad things happening, I mean, you're the captain, you got to react. You, I mean, everybody's looking towards you, so. In a couple of hairy situations I've been in, I don't ever remember being afraid. You know, maybe when it was all done and over with, it was kind of like, 
yeah, get pretty shaky and think, holy crap, you know, that could have turned out a lot worse. But no, at the time, and you never know how you're going to react in situations, but I have to say the couple situations I've been in, I've always thought that I've stayed pretty level-headed. Can you describe one of those? Well, I, I was going to say first, like early on, back when I first became a captain, you know, maybe the first year or two, my wife and I were on vacation. I think we were in San Francisco, and we were on the waterfront, and we were in some little nautical shop. And I saw this little plaque, and it kind of it struck home, and I kind of modeled my career or whatever after that. It, it just, like I said, it struck home. What did it say? And it said something to the effect, I, I'm sure it was probably worded better than what I, more eloquently than I can say it. But what it said was, a superior sailor uses his superior knowledge and judgment so that he's not required to use his superior skill, his superior seamanship. In other words, keep yourself out of trouble. Don't do stupid stuff. Don't be out there when you shouldn't be out there. You know, it just, it struck home. You know, so you're always thinking ahead. It's kind of like, okay, you know, the weather's getting, you know, should I be here? What, you know, so, so I've always tried to stay ahead. You know, I'm, I'm always, you know, like I said, that just struck home. It's kind of like, yeah, don't get yourself into trouble. And, and through my career, and you see things. I mean, boats can take a lot. And, and when, when things, bad things happen to boats, it's usually never one thing. It's usually this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. I mean, and you can survive this, you can survive that, but all of a sudden you've got two, three, four things, and, and eventually you just can't keep Avalanche. up. Avalanche. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, so bad situations. Well, you, don't, you don't have to share one if you don't want to. Um, well, one of the ones, no, I'll, I'll share it. I mean, it's not on Viking Explorer. One of the scariest things for me on boats is fire. And uh, this goes back. So I'm running the Viking Explorer, and we're into 1987. My wife's pregnant. Maynard had quit, so I had the boat to myself. Um, he quit just like six, seven months, eight months maybe after I got on board. And so I had the boat to myself, and I'm running. And my wife's pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. And so I'm telling Corey, I said, Corey, I, I said, I'd like to see if we could find an alternate skipper because, you know, I'd like to be home this fall. And, I mean, we quit fishing in November anyway um, because that's when the season was over and we wouldn't start till January. The twins were due in November. But I thought I wanted to be home in January so I could spend a little time with them. And so I said, Corey, maybe we can find somebody that wants to come and I can break them in here, you know, this this fall. And they can run it a couple months this fall and, you know, into the winter. And then, you know, and he goes, yeah, sure. And so he starts looking for somebody. And, and I'm thinking, well, the, the babies are due in November. No big deal. Well, come August, she gets put on bed rest. And then another week or two goes by, she's put in the hospital. And I'm calling Corey and it's Okay, can we get somebody up here? When he, he finally gets somebody, I get home. And it's kind of like the whole married thing. I get home a few days later. We've got babies, and uh, I got home just five or six days before that happened. They came early, obviously, and because we're in September. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, now and I've Corey found a guy. He's hired him. You know, I made a couple trips with him. He's good to go. I talked to him. Yeah, he's all jazzed about due in January and February so I've got it all set up 
I get home in September. I'm not going back to work till March. Kids, babies are born. They're going to be whatever, three, four, five months old before I go back to work. I think this is working out really good. I got to say both preemies. Yeah, yeah, they were preemies. Both, both preemies. Yeah, yep. yeah, they were, I mean, they were tiny. One of them was, one of them was two pounds, seven ounces. The little one, the other one was three pounds, 14 ounces, something like that. But they were healthy. Yeah, they were healthy. It was, it was, it was very interesting experience. I'll say that. And of course, obviously, we spent some time with them in the hospital. We finally get them home. It had to be well into October, towards the end of October, and we're home. And like I said, we're kind of falling into this routine. You know, we've got two new little kids, and you know, I'm just I'm relaxed. We got, you know hunting season's coming up i'm going to try to sneak away do a little bit of hunting you know i don't have to go to work till march and we're into november and i get a phone call and it's from gordy the guy that i started with okay and you know we had become good friends we stayed good friends and he goes hey he goes i got a pretty big favor to ask he goes i'm in the hospital they're going to do bypass surgery on me tomorrow morning and we're talking like, so this is middle end of November. Well, Dungeness crab season starts the 1st of December, and that's his big moneymaker. He goes, can you take my boat Dungeness fishing? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say no. And uh, so I said, well, sure. So, and, and he his insurance was owner-operator only, but his boat was in the same insurance pool as the Viking Explorer, so he knew it was a slam dunk to get me approved. So anyway, we do that. Well, of course, he had a guy that was on the boat he was older than me him luke luke and i had worked back deck together for gordy the the year that we dungeness crabbed it and so i thought all i gotta do is be on the boat so i said luke do you want to drive because i i didn't care if i drove or not i just had to be on the boat and uh and and i just figured that kind of smooth things over a little bit rather than me stepping in there so the first day we had a bunch of bad weather and i think we sat for a week and finally we get a day of nice weather whoops we throw the lines, we take off, and we're going out the Iwako Channel. And those boats have a, a diesel oil stove for heat and cooking. You know, all the small trawlers, a lot of them, all trollers, you know, that's the little boats, that's what they had. Luke was there early and he'd fired it up and make coffee and, and we threw lines, we took off. And it's pretty warm in the boat, so I go over and I turn the stove down. And another 15, 20 minutes, it's kind of like, it's still getting warmer. And so I'd go over and I'd turn it off, and it's still getting warmer. And this time I open it up, I look inside the pot where the diesel fuel is, and it's just roaring full of flames, and it's full of fuel. And it's kind of like something isn't right. So I go down to the engine room and trying to track down the line, because obviously the, the control isn't turning off the fuel. And there's a copper line running up, but it had a piece of rubber hose in it. So I took a pair of vice grips and I clamped that shut. And I go, okay, no fuel's getting by that. And I come back up, well, now we've got the boat's full of smoke and I mean it's just rolling out the these thing these diesel stoves have a big thick heavy steel top this thing's glowing red and at this point the whole cabin's full of smoke Luke's up driving from the flybridge I grab fire extinguishers at this point and I, I open up the stove and I shoot it in there it puts it out but immediately reignites because I mean it steel's all red hot so I grabbed the other fire, I mean, we're talking 46 foot boat, so it's got two fire extinguishers on it. I grabbed the other one and I run back there and it's, boom, no charge, it's dead. And uh, so at this point I go and I mean, go grab the radio. 
I've got the little window open. I'm hanging my head out the window because I can't breathe in the boat. It's, I mean, it's completely black smoke. You can't see anything. And so I call the Coast Guard, you know, tell them what we're doing. And I told Lucas, just, you know, we got to go back. <laughs> you know, and he turns the boat around. We're heading back. And, and of course, the Coast Guard station's right there on the Owaco Channel. We're out on the Columbia River Bar at this point. And I go back, you know, I get off the radio. I run back out on the back deck, get some fresh air. I come back, and at this point, there's diesel fuel under the stove and on the floor, and there's fire with it. It's there's still fuel coming in there, and I can't. I don't have no idea why. And of course, I'm out of extinguishers. It's like, what do you do? I mean, this boat's going to burn up if I don't do something. Well, they tell you not to dump water on an oil fire, but I I had nothing else. And so I grabbed a bucket, and the one thing I knew what was happening because I did put it out once or twice with that fire extinguisher. Well, it was reigniting because that top was so hot. So I got a five-gallon bucket, and I went in there, and I opened up that stove, and I just dumped it. And yes, it did spread the oil, and it spread some flames on the floor, but it cooled that top, and so they didn't reignite. And then I could just stomp out what little bit of oil was on fire on the floor and everything. But when I think about it, yeah, I mean, we could have lost the boat. Again, I didn't have time to be scared. You had to do stuff. So, yeah, so you, you, you react. You have to do things. You know, other times... We had one on the Viking Explorer. Um, you hear the word freak wave or monster wave or something. Rogue wave. Rogue wave, yep, that's that's another one. And so we were out, we were fishing just north of Accutan. We were back Pollock fishing, obviously, and, and delivering shore-based Accutan. We were at the end of our trip, which I was on my last tow. I knew I was going to be hauling back, and that would fill the boat. And the weather was forecast to come up that afternoon, and... Uh, but you know, it was pretty nice weather when we were out there. And as we were finished up, the weather was it was kicking up. You know, and I was up to blowing 35, and we probably had eight, 10, 12 foot seas, something like that, which is nothing. You know, it's pretty everyday stuff. And so, you know, I called the guys. We're hauling, you know, to haul, get ready to haul back, engage the winches, and like I say, if we had 10 or 12 footers running, I didn't think anything. But I engaged the winches, and I'm just I'm standing there in the trawl station looking after. The, out the back deck, weather behind us. And it was kind of like, I looked at this and it was like, holy moly. This wave just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. On the aft? Yeah, coming behind us because we we had the sea on our stern. And I grabbed the loud hailer and I told the guys, I says, take cover, we got a big one. And fortunately, they all jumped in the shelter locker and pulled the door shut. Because this thing rolled over the top of us. I don't know, my stern gantry is... 18, 20 feet off the water, and you got third wire winch that sits a little higher than that, and we have an A-frame that's higher than that. The top of the A-frame didn't go under the water, but the third wire winch did. And I mean, this thing just rolled over us. It buried the entire back of the boat. It all disappeared. And I mean, I'm in the wheelhouse. I'm, it rolls by the side of me. And I mean, the entire back deck is, there's nothing there but green water. And, and it's kind of like, there was nothing I could do at this point. It's just sort of like, I'm sitting there going, God, I hope this thing pops back up. <laughs> and it did. I mean, the wave rolled by us, and I just watched, and eventually the bulwarks showed up, and pretty soon the deck, everything just flowed away, and, and there wasn't time to be scared there. I mean, it just it just happened. So, so what about someone trying to get into our industry? Well, you know, I mean, I'm reluctant, you know, I'm reluctant, I guess, to tell people, I don't know what to say exactly. It's kind of like, 
if guys are interested in, I mean, I'll tell them. It's kind of like, yeah, I mean, I it's been a good life for me. You know, I don't know. I'm not really sure what to tell people. It's kind of like, you got to work hard. You, you know, but things have to go your way, too. I mean, I think what Trident's doing as far as this apprenticeship program they got going, I mean, that's that's a great way. Um, probably one Feel of the only ways. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the only ways, really. It's, it's hard to break into it. I mean, if you know somebody, obviously... Your dad, you know, you, your dad's got a friend or something like that, you know, know people and, and they can get in. But I don't encourage, I don't strongly encourage, I don't really discourage people either, but I'm, I try to stay pretty neutral about it. You know, I'll try to give them facts, but I don't... It's a, it's a scary job. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, and I'm not the guy that I want to tell them that, oh, yeah, you know, you can go out there and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to play it up like that. I would rather kind of downplay it and it's kind of like, you know... You can make a good living. But the fact is, you can make a $100,000. Well, yeah, but, you can. But you can also be killed at it. You can and also said, be killed. You can, I mean, for every guy that's got a really good job, you see guys that are out there just busting their hump yeah. and coming out with nothing or very little, yeah. you know. And, I mean, you know, in my day, in my early days when I was salmon trolling and everything, we never made any money. Had a hell of a lot of fun. You know, fishing up and down the West I'll, Coast. I always love to see those nets come up because you don't know what you're going to get. It's, you, oh, yeah. You're fishing for one thing, but you don't know what's coming up, yeah. really. Um, there's that little bit. All right, we're we're absolutely out of time, but Jeff, I cannot thank you enough for coming today. Sure. This has been freaking awesome. Uh, before we depart, though, uh, just a reminder, which you for you guys was an hour ago, uh, the ALS event coming up May 15th. Jeff will be there. I'm yep, sure I think it was so. Bells I think so. And uh, any questions or comments, write in to marketgalleystories.net. If you have questions for Jeff, follow us on uh, Facebook. We'll be going live on May 15th as well for a special broadcast. But uh, thanks for tuning in today. And again, the ALS uh, fundraiser on May 15th. Uh, Trident Seafoods is sending their food truck with 100% of all sales going to the ALS fund. So please, if you do nothing else, come there and buy some food. Sounds good. Right. Looking forward to it. You, you have anything else to say before we finish this up? Uh, no, thanks a lot for having me. I it's hope been... it was interesting. <laughs> They're going to be the response. All right, guys. Uh, once again, this has been Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I'm your host, Mark Kaler, and we will see you next time. <laughs>